Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Kabul Carnival, Gender Politics in Post-War Afghanistan by Yuli Bio. The book is published by University of Pennsylvania Press, and Yuli is a researcher at the Max Planck Institute of Social Anthropology in Halle. The book is a really fascinating account of women and the state and the ongoing reconstruction projects in post-war Afghanistan. It moves through places such as gender empowerment training programs, women's dormitories, and analyzes topics such as the law and failing in public. It's really subtle and engaging and a rare and much needed anthropological insight into women's lives in Afghanistan. I had the pleasure of speaking with Yuli just a few moments before. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Yuli to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. Thank you. So before we talk about your book itself, could you please first tell us a little bit about your academic background? Yes. So Originally, I've been trained as a political scientist, in fact. Um, I graduated from Sciences Po in Paris before uh, moving to the UK to pursue a master's degree and then a PhD. So it is at, uh, at the University of Sussex that I discovered anthropology. And it was a sort of uh, intellectual revelation in the sense that uh, the discipline brought the kind of, um, of subtleties that I thought were lacking in political sciences. So, in fact, political scientists often envision politics as being primarily rooted in formal political parties, institutions, while anthropologists um, bring the politics of the everyday in the picture of the context they study. And this is what was really appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also at Sussex that I became interested in gender issues. Uh, during my MA, I took a course on gender discourses and relation in Europe which was uh, taught by Jane Cowen, who later on became my PhD uh, supervisor. So I found, uh, I found the course so fascinating that I chose to write my AMA thesis on a Paris-based group of women activists for peace in the Middle East called the Women in Black. I don't know if you've heard of this group before. They, are, um, they, they started, in fact, in, uh, in Argentina, and then other groups of Women in Black were created in different places where conflicts um, had erupted. So in this piece of work, like in my work on Afghanistan, I was interested in observing the various ways in which women become visible in public. That is to say, um, how women become politically politically legitimate um, subjects with a voice of their own. So women in black in Paris gathered once a week on a square in the city centre They were dressed in black, they were holding posters with slogans against the occupation of Palestine. The setting they had created to stage their protest was inspired from the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires, who organized weekly marches to denounce the disappearance of their sons during the dirty war of the military dictatorship between 76 and 83. So like them, um, the women in black remained uh, silent, their presence on the square 
uh, acted as a public reminder of the conflict, conflict uh, and a public reminder of their loss uh, as mothers of Israeli and Palestinian children. Their performance was, uh, uh, of course, uh, consciously gendered. It tapped into nationalist representation of women as mourning mothers, but it also challenged such representation by bringing women in a space traditionally reserved to men, which is the square, the, the ultimate political arena. So in my, uh, with my PhD, I, I, I moved away from uh, my hometown, from Paris, uh, and I redi redirected my focus on Afghanistan because uh, I had spent a year there as a humanitarian worker uh, short after the intervention of the coalition forces in 2003-2004. So at that time, I was a young um, graduate and I didn't know what to do with my life. And like many of us, I ended up working, you know, many of us who've studied in the humanities, in, in social sciences, we, I ended up working for an NGO. And uh, because the, uh, the intervention had been justified by... Uh, by the necessity to put an end to what was called by uh, human rights activists uh, the gender ap apartheid, um, I thought it would be it would be useful actually to scrutinize what this externally imposed liberation would concretely mean in practice. So the women I met uh, during my first journey in Afghanistan had very little to do with uh, the ones that were described, uh, you know, depicted in the international press. They were not uh, the passive victims of uh, religious fundamentalism. In fact, I found very politically engaged women, extremely resourceful women, who, uh, who had a lot to say about the future of their country. So my book is, uh, is, a kind of a, is an attempt at uh, retrieving these voices and at providing a more accurate representation of the complex reality of their lives under uh, the current uh, occupation. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay. Now, uh, now let's talk a little bit about Kabul Carnival more more, more directly. You've given us a, a wonderful introduction about your suppose, your inspiration behind why you wanted to why you wanted to go and write this book. Now, the the book itself it's about women and it's about the state as as you've already talked about. And it, but you use this term post war carnival. So I was wondering, could you first please unpack these three terms a little bit for us? Tell us why the category women emerges as such an important way to understand the state. And um, what did you mean to capture with this provocative metaphor of the carnival? Yes, the, uh, the idea I'm trying to articulate with the metaphor of the carnival is that the uh, current agenda for the empowerment of women is part of a, a broader humanitarian theatre. Um, and I think it's important to reflect on the term theater. Uh, we talk about humanitarian theater in Afghanistan. We also talk about a military theater. Uh, but, but I think, you know, it's interesting to try and unpack what term theater means. And I think, you know, um, that um, actually uh, this agenda for the empowerment of women serves to promote an impression of normalization for uh, Western audiences while at the same time hiding the continuity of violence and injustice uh, at the local level. Um, if you remember well, I mean, the reconstruction of Afghanistan has been presented to us uh, in the West as a return to normality, 
after long years of war and authoritarian rule. And this discourse has uh, fed the illusion of an absolute reversal from an old order, uh, which was characterized by uh, brutality uh, during the Taliban regime in particular, to a new one characterized by democracy, the rule of law, and gender, gender justice. So here I am um, referring to, um, to the carnivalesque, to the carnival, as defined in the literary work of uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, um, in his uh, work on, uh, on Rabelais, uh, in his book Rabelais and his world. So you will perhaps think, you know, what has Rabelais to do with Afghanistan? Well, in fact, I found that it was kind of useful uh, to, uh, to go back to Bakhtin and to Rabelais and to his description of the carnival uh, in particular. He describes, Bakhtin described the carnival as a moment when uh, rules are turned upside down and everything is permitted. Um, it's voiding the borders between actors and spectators. It aims to break down conventions. And uh, in addition, the carnival is supposed to open up opportunities for a new order of things. So during the, the carnival, still according to Bakhtin, Ordinary, ordinary life rules and hierarchies are temporarily suspended and overturned. So slaves may be crowned crown as kings, and kings are decrowned and become slaves. Yeah. So, but however, the um, the apparent reversal of roles is aimed at maintaining certain uh, relations of power. So the slave can behave as a king for a while, but by the end of the performance, he will be dead, and the and the and the old order will be restored. So the the carnival is also structured by rituals. Yet the main goal of rituals of reversal is to rem remind that power belongs to the role, not to the person who occupies that specific role. So rituals, in this perspective, appear as a public sedative. Um, Indeed, the carnival is the very moment during which, through the apparent subversion, a specific hierarchical order is maintained and even reinforced. So to go back now to, uh, to the context of Afghanistan, um, a closer look at the inconsistency, paradoxes and ambiguities that have accompanied the reconstruction, especially in the sensitive arena of gender, reveals that this rhetoric of reversal is a carnivalesque performance in a long history of foreign-led modernization programs, disconnected from the social and material reality of the people who are supposed to benefit from it. So in my book, I show that the international community's concern with the visibility of women in public has ultimately created tensions and, in fact, constrained women's capacity to find a culturally legitimate voice. So while the reconstruction has opened up new possibilities for women, um, the ideological framework on which it is based, that is to say, um, liberal notions of equality and human rights, uh, together with the strong military presence of foreign troops, have triggered moral panics around identity. So women... Um, are on the one hand pressurized by their community to remain faithful to their culture, their religion, their traditions, 
and they are encouraged at the same time to access the public, become visible, uh, and, and they are encouraged by, um, by the global forces uh, that have joined uh, hands to reconstruct Afghanistan. So they are um, at the front line of this symbolic battle between competing notions of honor, modernity, democracy, and uh, the place of Islam in society. So they have had to develop, you know, in order to maintain their public presence, uh, they have had to develop alternative ways to preserve some kind of autonomy. And to a great degree, they have had to engage in carnivalesque performance too. So here I'm referring to the more positive aspect of Bakhtin's notion of the carnival, that is to say its regenerative potential, its liberating power. And finally, um, one major aspect of the so-called reconstruction um, has focused on state building. Yeah. It's another very important uh, aspect of a discussion in my book. So what does uh, state building mean in concrete terms? Well, it has meant mostly uh, providing salaries to the staff uh, employed in ministries, uh, training the police and the army, building buildings for schools and hospitals. But if um, state infrastructure have been somewhat rebuilt, uh, the traditional Weberian function of the state are shared with a myriad of other actors such as NGOs, UN agencies, the World Bank, private companies, local militias, narco-traffickers. So there is a myriad of actors who uh, are sharing, or not necessarily sharing, but competing also with the state. So most um, state infrastructures also uh, remain quite dysfunctional because of the lack of trained personnel, uh, because of uh, financial uh, constraints, and also because of widespread corruption. So for all of these reasons, uh, I think it's, uh, it's wrong uh, to do uh, like political scientists do when looking at Afghanistan and to focus on the institution. Um, uh, and it's better to not to move away from analysis that understand the state in terms of apparatus or structures uh, and it's perhaps more accurate to describe the Afghan state as a ghostly entity, and I, I use the, the, term, the term phantom state in my book. Um, it's a kind of a, yeah, uh, indeed a ghostly entity um, whose boundaries remain uh, elusive, porous, and very mobile. But in spite of these, uh, you know, ambiguities, um, and in spite of the fact that the state is, a, is very difficult to grasp, it remains a very powerful object of fantasies for both uh, representative of the international community and ordinary Afghans. There are lots of expectations about what the state should do, especially uh, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, the, the provision of, um, of legal order, um, of law and order. Uh, and when it comes to gender justice in particular. So this tension is, I think, a distinctive, distinctive feature of, of this post-colony, which you can find in Afghanistan, but in many other countries uh, in the world. 
And it is a feature that I'm trying to describe in the book using various ethnographic examples collected in the Afghan judiciary and the, in the Ministry of Women's Affairs uh, in particular. Thank you. I mean, what's uh, what's so interesting as well um, is that these sort of topics that you've you've just talked about now, like in terms of women's bodies and, and debates about tradition and modernity and so on, they're not a new thing to Afghanistan. You you talk you talk about this in chapter one that actually there's a, there's been a, quite a long history of the ways in which bodies have have been the sites about debates which tradition and modernity have been played out. So could you please briefly just talk us through some of the main strands of this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the reconstruction, um, the current reconstruction project uh, in Afghanistan can be can be placed in a long series of modernization attempts that have been carried out in the 1920s under uh, King Amanullah, uh, who was the, the king who um, who uh, liberated Afghanistan from uh, the British uh, occupation, and then in the 1960s and 70s under uh, King Zahir Shah. Uh, who was very much inspired by other modernization attempts uh, carried out in the Middle East, and then in the 1980s under the communist regime. So all of these uh, modernization attempts uh, were marked by a very strong emphasis on gender issues. In Afghanistan, like in Turkey, under Atatürk, or in Syria, Iran, and Iraq, during the same period, the construction of the modern state implied the reshaping of gender relations through state-led programs from, for the emancipation of women. So to a great extent, uh, the current focus on women mirrors uh, these earlier developments inspired by modernization theory, according to which tradition and cultures were considered as uh, barriers or constraints to, to development. And indeed, what one often hears in development circles and among the political elite uh, nowadays is that the main barriers to the emancipation of women are to be found in Afghan culture, uh, in Afghan customs and traditions. It's interesting. It's something I heard very often at the Ministry of Women's Affairs, where I spent a, a little bit of time conducting fieldwork, is that, uh, you know, once uh, traditions... Uh, Bad traditions uh, are um, removed thanks to uh, legal reform, then women would, would become emancipated. And I think these explanations uh, are very problematic because they, they tend to take for granted the notion of culture uh, as if uh, it could be easily pinpointed, as if, uh, as if Afghan culture had never changed and had never been discussed and it was still not discussed at all. In fact, for me, I considered uh, I consider Afghan culture as a as a battleground, uh, constantly contested. And interestingly, I recently came across uh, an old tourist guidebook written by um, a scholar Nancy Dupre, who spent a lot of time in Afghanistan uh, and still alive. Uh, she spent a lot of time in Afghanistan in the nineteen seventies. And um, she, she wrote that guidebook for, of Kabul, uh, and it was published by the Ministry of Tourism in 1976. And in the last chapter of the guide, um, a full list of restaurants that serve Afghan wines, uh, together with uh, Kabul nightclubs, uh, is, is provided. So in these days, uh, going clubbing and drinking wine was part of the Afghan cosmopolitan elite's culture. 
And this is to me a very good illustration, a very good example of how culture is a floating signifier, how it's constantly changing according to political circumstances. Wonderful, thank you. Um, I, what, what I really liked in the, in the second chapter, I liked, I liked all of the chapters, but the second chapter is wonderfully called Gender Empowerment Training Program. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, could you, could you talk us through this and in what ways this program was part of the, the reconstruction effort? Yes, I, I decided to write about this uh, training carried out at the Ministry of Women's Affairs, uh, precisely because trainings and workshops uh, constitute the core activities of the reconstruction. I mean, it's very difficult to count the number of trainings uh, carried out every day in Kabul because there are too many of them. Uh, so I consider these trainings and these workshops as uh, kind of uh, some kinds of rituals that uh, all development actors have to attend and to, in which they have to participate in order to become part of this reconstruction carnival. The one I, I describe in, in chapter two is, uh, of course, uh, symptomatic of, of the gap between the practical needs of ordinary ordinary Afghans and and the utopian ideals of, of the international actors uh, involved on the ground. Uh, it illustrates particularly well, I think, the values on which the reconstruction is based, namely uh, freedom in the neoliberal sense of the term. <clears throat> According to which the you know the individual is the primarily uh, is primarily responsible for for his own destiny for his own fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in this training, um, which targeted uh, representative of uh, provincial councils, who are very um, honourable uh, persons uh, in their regions, um, people were invited to you know, do relaxation exercises uh, to the extent that they had to, you know, um, do some kind of a, um, relaxation while, you know, grabbing imaginary apples in the air and all this in the name of creating a good atmosphere. So there was a kind of clash between the culture from which this American trainer came from and, uh, you know, Afghan culture where actually, you know, people feel responsible for taking care of their uh, foreign guests. And uh, in, in spite of the fact that they found it very weird, they really, you know, did their best to, uh, to participate in the training. And I think it was not only out of politeness that participants tried to do so, but it was also a means, they understood, a means to, um, you know, become part of, uh, of, of development and perhaps later on, you know, gain access to resources of some kind. So this training, even though there is something, I mean, I, I, I recall very um, uh, humoristic about it. Um, I mean, it could have been filmed. Uh, this training, I think, is, is still very representative of, of what reconstruction uh, is about. It's very much about, um, you know, workshops and writing laws. It's very immaterial in many ways. And that nicely brings us on to, to thinking a bit about about law. I mean, you, you, you talk also in the book about this discrepancy between this very public focus on law and order, but then sort of the everyday experience of, of, of lawlessness. And um, so I was wondering in what ways has the law, both formal and informal, been used in post-war Afghanistan and to what effects? Yes, I mean, 
Indeed, if, if trainings and, and workshops uh, can be considered as developmentary tools, I mean, lawmaking law is, is another aspect of, of this carnival. Law writing and constitution making represent in Afghanistan, and in fact, uh, it is the same in many other countries under state building reconstruction schemes. Um, these um, activities um, represent a central effort uh, of the reconstruction. But here again, I mean, you, as you uh, noted, there is a major gap between the international expectation toward uh, the state and the material reality of Afghan lives. So in order for the state to maintain a semblance of existence, existence, the parliament has been endowed with the duty to write laws. But because the state has no concrete means to enforce the law, the only way for the Afghan policy to assert itself has been through the use of violence and symbolic or real and the writing of laws that carry uh, important symbolic power. So ironically, in spite of the fact that quotas have been established for women in the parliament, and there are 25% of women in the parliament now, many of these laws have had to do with controlling women's visibility in public. So I was kind of surprised when I um, you know, uh, did some fieldwork in the parliament and observed the... Um, meetings of, uh, of the assembly to realize that uh, actually a lot of time was spent discussing, you know, the appropriateness of women's dress in public, for instance, and that this was, uh, this was uh, such an important subject that uh, actually it, uh, it's provided, um, you know, inspiration for writing new laws about how women should dress, for instance, at wedding parties. Um, so... So the law, in, which was supposed to be, you know, a source of emancipation, not for Afghan women only, but for all Afghans in general, the law has mostly been used to actually um, asset authoritarian rule for lack of real capacity from Afghan political actors to do anything else. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Um... Probably my, my, my favorite chapter was, was the next chapter, which is, a, which is a discussion about how young, educated Muslim women had to balance between being modern on the one hand and, and modest on the other. So Azuni, could you please tell us a little bit about these women, how you came to know them, and the role that religion played in the ways that they negotiated their selfhood? Yes, I mean, I spent a lot of time, I mean, I spent four months uh, in the National Women's Dormitory, which was located on Kabul University campus, and this became one of my major field sites. Uh, this dormitory uh, had been renovated uh, with U.S. funding, and actually it was the personal uh, project of the American first lady of the time, Laura Bush. Um, and uh, it was administered by a U.N. agency, and it was supervised by the uh, Ministry of Higher Education. So there were various actors, again, that's a good illustration of what I was just talking about earlier, you know, uh, this division of state responsibilities between different actors, uh, so the UN, uh, the US agency, and then the Ministry of, uh, of Higher Education. And this dorm had the uh, capacity to accommodate about 1,100 female students, 
But at the time of my fieldwork in 2007, it only accommodated 500 students. And the reason for that was that, again, you know, just to go back to what I said uh, earlier, the reason for that was that uh, the Ministry of Higher Education made it very difficult for young women to actually uh, access this dorm uh, because uh, the ministry capacity to, you know, uh, give, provide access was the only capacity that it had. Right. And, and in addition, the dorm was a very controversial space. It was perceived as a, by the public as a source of foreign pollution. There were lots of gossips around this dorm. Um, and a lot of frustration as well, because boys at the university didn't have a dorm. You know, they had one, but it was falling apart. So only the girls' dormitory had been renovated. So I thought it was a very interesting space because it was a space that was supposed to accommodate the new generation of young women, um, educated young women, uh, who were going to be, uh, you know, the future of their country. So thanks to the intercession of a student uh, I had recruited as my research assistant and diary teacher, and we boarded in that dorm, uh, I was offered a room there among, uh, among the female students in return for English and French lessons. So I lived there for uh, four months and I shared girls' daily activities. I improved my diary there and I gained insight into what made these young women's everyday lives. Yeah. So this is the material I use in, in chapter four of the book, uh, where I give an account of the moral dilemmas this young woman uh, face when it comes to what to wear. It's not that I decided to focus on clothing, but it appeared that it was a very important subject of discussion. So in this chapter, I demonstrate that even among the young women who try to distinguish themselves from uh, the other young women who had never uh, lived Afghanistan. So among, among, even among these young women who had lived in Iran or in Pakistan, so who wanted to be seen as modern, educated, cosmopolite women, uh, consideration around modesty and Islam remained central in their sartorial cho choices. And I think that this uh, conformism that uh, dominates in public has less to do with uh, Afghan culture than with the current occupation that has exacerbated inequalities and triggered moral panics around national identity. So women have to, again, you know, kind of uh, weigh and balance um, on how to present themselves to the world. And none of them uh, wants to be seen as, you know, disrespectful of religion. But, um, but they are not, uh, you know, the powerless victims of uh, identity politics. And they are able to mobilize the Afghan cultural imagination in order to render audible claims pertaining to their position in the family, in the community, or in society at large. So they are neither dupes nor revolutionaries. What they often seek tactically, even, even though they don't have a theory to dress it up, they do, would never present themselves as a feminist. But what they seek tactically is to optimize uh, the terms of recognition in their immediate local lives. And this entails a lot of thinking about, you know, what to wear, especially when one 
is caught in this dilemma of wanting to be both, uh, you know, modern, educated, and and a good Muslim Afghan Muslim girl. <laughs> it really is a really is a fascinating discussion in that chapter. Now let's talk again. Maybe not so we can call it clothing, but uh, we'll talk about the veil because um, I think one of the most annoying discussions in the Western public sphere is about women wearing the veil, especially in Afghanistan. I mean, when you when you read any sort of newspaper article, even supposedly good newspapers, it makes you it makes you angry. It makes you miss, makes you wish that more people paid attention to anthropologists uh, like yourself. So one of your arguments in the book is that these liberal ideas about veiling and the supposed lack of agency is misguided. So I was wondering, could you please tell us a little bit about veiling and women in public in Afghanistan? I mean, you're totally right. I mean, the, the burqa, which actually, I mean, it's interesting to, to know that the burqa is not a term that is used in Afghanistan very much. It's, mm-hmm. it's called chattery. So the burqa uh, is perceived in, in the West as the uh, ultimate symbol of women's oppression. And actually, you know, it has become, it has been used quite a lot to encourage, gather public support for, uh, for the intervention, so showing in the media women fully veiled under these burqas was, uh, you know, a means to trigger emotions uh, uh, and popular emotion and to, uh, you know, get the support of, of the Western public for, for this intervention. So now what I'm trying to show using ethnographic data collected, collected among um, mostly women's rights activists and uh, women MPs is that women who are attempting to access the public and um, had to develop creative strategies of dissimulation to get public recognition. And they have, to a great extent, become visible under the veil, and they are sometimes able to challenge gender hierarchies uh, behind the appearance of compliance and conformity. So what you see is not necessarily what, what is happening, you know, it's not necessarily what, the way we understand it in the West. For, for example, uh, I understood that there was a huge difference uh, in, in the choice of veils um, between um, female MPs coming from rural areas and female representatives of Kabul. Uh, for instance, uh, women who uh, you know, campaigned uh, in rural areas conducted their campaign using, using the burqa. Mm-hmm. So the burqa was, uh, for them, kind of a, a mobile home, to, to use uh, Laila Abulugod's term. I think it's a very good metaphor. It's a mobile home. It was a means to access the public while maintaining the ideal of female modesty. And when they came to the parliament, they came with their, with their burqa, and when they sat in, uh, in the hemicycle of, of the National Assembly, they, they removed it, of course, but they, they tried to wear... Um, you know, uh, headscarves that uh, that remained quite neutral. So black was the main color. Whereas, uh, whereas uh, female MPs from Kabul didn't have to do that because in Kabul, you know, the elite um, doesn't wear any any burqa. So it's not a, a garment that is used, uh, you know, universally uh, everywhere in Afghanistan. And in fact, there are different colors for different regions. So in Kabul, it's mostly blue. Uh, if you go to Herat, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, yellow, I think. And uh, if you go to um, Mazar al-Sharif, uh, are, are white and so on, the forest. Uh, so there are also some kind of uh, plays on colors. 
but I, I don't want to push that too much. What I want to, to say is that, uh, you know, women dress differently in different contexts. Um, and um, in the same way as we would not go to work uh, wearing a swimming suit. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's important to see that, uh, you know, uh, it's very much... Um, uh, decisions are very much taken, of course, taking into consideration, you know, what the family expects from them. But it's also very much a personal, you know, personal strategic, personal decision. And these findings, I think, challenge liberal ideas according to which women's visibility in public spaces uh, is a necessary guarantee for their emancipation and their agency. Um, because, in fact, uh, you know, uh, the, the book, again, is, is a means to access the public, is a means to, um, you know, and actually I, I was really uh, fascinated by the ways in which, you know, women in bazaars, in, in markets, uh, who were the chattery, um, were able to bargain a lot with merchants, whereas the women who didn't wear any, they really had to put an effort on to actually appear modest, because uh, because they they were very visible with their face unveiled and covered, and so they had to be uh, to perform shyness, you know, in order to be uh, to to display an image of of, of a modest woman, an effort that women wearing the chadri really didn't have to to make. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. So um, now let's move to sort of the last um, the last substantive chapter in your book. You you make an argument that um, some suicides in Afghanistan could be seen as expressive or communicative acts. I was wondering, could you please talk us through this idea and, and, and by way of this also tell us a little bit about emotion and suffering in the lives of the women you researched amongst? Yes. Uh, the reason why I decided to talk about suicide is because uh, during my fieldwork in 2007, there was a kind of pandemic of women committing suicide through self-immolation. And um, and I was very dissatisfied with the ways in which was uh, this phenomenon was being analysed and discussed in the press. Um, I mean, most of the explanation were of economic and psychological order, and more rarely uh, the social dimension uh, was given any any place or any role. Uh, so in my last chapter, I'm trying to underline the communicative potential of Afghan women's suicide in the post-war reconstruction context. And, I, I, and I'm trying to highlight its uh, ambiguous symbolic power and its anchorage uh, in the subversive imaginary universe of women's political expression, which is a very rich, a very um, colorful universe. So... What I'm trying to argue is that uh, if uh, suicide reproduced certain cultural ideas about women's inherent emotional fragility, uh, it's often the way you know locally it is understood, and uh, women are are emotionally fragile. Actually, women's suicide also challenges the honor system in powerful ways, and opens up possibilities for voicing discontent. So, so I think it can be seen as uh, what Certo calls the art of the weak, as a covered form of protest, uh, as a kind of a, a performance that builds upon traditional popular knowledge about gender 
in order to manage the impression of, of an audience and make women's claims audible. And I'm using actually the um, example of two young women uh, who became my friend during my fieldwork, who were sisters, and who both uh, attempted suicide one after the other. Uh, both of them were quite young uh, and were uh, engaged in a very unconventional unconventional activities for women uh, in the Afghan context. One was a singer, the other one was um, a Kung Fu champion. Um, and um, this family had lived in exile in Iran for a very long time and had returned to Afghanistan uh, after the invasion. And while in Iran, it was completely uh, possible for them um, to actually uh, you know, be a singer and a Kung Fu champion, when they returned to Afghanistan, the family had lost you know, their house, uh, they, the, the father was unemployed, and suddenly um, you know, it became a dishonor that they were involved in such activities, it became a dishonor to the family. So, so each of them um, decided to swallow uh, pills one after the other. I mean, in two weeks' time, um, this occurred. And, uh, and I don't think that these young women, whom I know, I knew very personally, uh, really wanted to put an end to their lives, even though I'm not uh, saying that they were really happy with their lives, but I don't think they wanted to die. So I'm trying to place this story, uh, you know, in the in the imaginary universe of this dorm where young women spend a lot of time reading poetry. And actually, they were reading poetry written by Afghan women. And actually, this poetry, uh, the poetry of Nadia Anjuman, the poetry of Rabia Balkhi, who are very famous Afghan poets, even though they are separated by several hundred years, um, this poetry was very much about, about suicide, about sacrifice about women's capacity to endure. And then I realized that actually, you know, uh, after a while I understood that uh, the main capacity uh, of a woman, the one that is the most value, is her capacity to sacrifice herself for the family, for the community. So I think, you know, they were kind of capitalizing on this, uh, on this uh, popular imagination in order to bring claims to get a voice. This is what I'm trying to to explain in this last chapter. Thank you. Now, um, I've shot through this book, it's a very rich book, uh, very quickly. So I was wondering if there's anything that I've missed that you'd like to highlight for those who've not yet had the chance to read the book. Well, I think, you know, the main purpose of this book, again, um, is, um, is to provide a, a more accurate picture of, of the situation of, of women uh, in Afghanistan is to bring a bit of nuance uh, and also to pay homage to their extreme resourcefulness. Uh, and it's also, um, you know, um, the issue of women is, to me, an entry point into the broader uh, reconstruction exercise. And I think it's a, an important one because it has been the one that has been brought to the fore in order to justify this intervention and to justify uh, the occupation and the prolongation of this occupation as well. So, so for people who are interested, um, um, you know, in gender issues, I think they will find many similarities with older contexts, um, even a colonial context. Uh, 
of uh, you know the situation of women in in colonial um, Algeria, for instance. Uh, so even for historians, uh, they will find many similarities with this other context. And for um, you know people who are interested in Afghanistan, well, actually, you know there are very few books, anthropological books uh, on women. Uh, there are many, but uh, not of an anthropological uh, from an anthropological perspective. So this is also a public I'm trying to to address. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, and I think it does this uh, does this really well. So now that this book is out, I know we talked just before we started recording. You have a you have a young son, so I asked this uh, with slight trepidation. What are your current and, and future projects? So besides taking care of my son, which is a, almost a full time job, of course, mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to uh, I'm uh, engaged in two uh, research projects. One has to do with uh, Islam in Europe, and in particular the UK, where you're from, in. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking at, uh, um, you know, um, the um, Islamic legal culture of, of Britain, uh, looking at different places where something like uh, the yeah, Islamic legal culture of the UK is taking shape. So I've been looking at Sharia Council, but also legal firms that, um, you know, are uh, specializing in Islamic law, and there are many of them. But also, um, you know, the UK is an interesting place for Islamic finance now. It's perhaps the first in Europe. Uh, so there's different places where um, something like an Islamic legal culture is taking, is taking roots. That's, that's one project. And then the other one is a, is a research project looking at um, international governance at the UN and in particular uh, a new human rights monitoring mechanism called the Universal Periodic Review uh, which uh, has been put in place uh, when the uh, UN Human Rights Council has been reformed uh, recently. So this is a project I'm carrying out with uh, my former PhD supervisor, Jane Cowan, um, and um, which allows me to also spend a bit of time in Geneva, where my family is based. Wonderful. So very different from Afghanistan, as you can see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do Geneva. Wonderful. Thanks so much for this discussion. I've really, I've really enjoyed uh, talking about your book and I really enjoyed reading it. I think it's, uh, like you mentioned before, I think it speaks to lots of different debates in, in many different ways and uh, really is, a, really is a, a fascinating read as well. So I'd like to recommend the book to everybody listening at home. And uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Ian. Thanks so much for downloading the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Kabul Carnival by Yuli Bio. This book is absolutely wonderful. I strongly recommend it, and I hope you listen again next time. Ta-ra!